All right, open your Bible to, uh, we're going to be in the book of Romans today, and we're talking about a life of faith. And uh, if you remember, last week we, we, uh, we talked about the marks uh, of a life of faith, the things that mark a life of faith. We said a life of faith is governed in the Word of God, and so we, we looked at Psalm 1, we looked at the Word of God last week, and in a life that's governed by and abiding in in the Word, and what the Scripture declares about that life and the promises um, of that life. So the marks are a life governed by the Word of God, a life empowered in the Spirit of God, a life perfected in the love of God. And the whole of these parts are, are seen in a life conformed to the Son of God. This is what Paul declares in Romans 8.29. We're going to look at that Scripture a little bit later. But he says that we are predestined to be conformed to His Son. And so a life of faith marked by these things, governed by the Word of God, empowered in the Spirit of God, perfected in the love of God, this is a life conformed to the Son of God. And today we're going to specifically look at a life empowered in the Spirit of God. And a couple of scriptures, we're going to be primarily in Romans, but uh, let, me, let me read a couple of scriptures to you. Acts 1.8, for instance, Jesus, uh, at the, before His ascension, here in the book of Acts, when He is commanding His disciples to go and to wait in the city of Jerusalem, He tells them in, in, uh, in this discourse recorded here in Acts 1.8, He says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Another scripture I want to bring to your attention is Galatians 5. Let's go there. So there's the promise of the Spirit coming upon those disciples. And we know we can go on and read in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the day had fully come, the Bible says that uh, God poured out His Spirit. And Peter tells us what that occasion was. It was that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And what does that mean, all flesh? What that means is not just kings and not just priests and not just prophets, but on all flesh. In other words, now we are, even though by natural birth we may not be born into the lineage of a royal family to sit on the throne, or we're not a priest or we're not a prophet, yet the Bible says in Christ we are all kings and we are all priests. So we see that all of those who are in Christ, that Spirit has been poured out and we can receive the Spirit of God. And so what is the fruit of that Spirit? And we go to Galatians 5. And we look at Galatians 5.16, for instance, where Paul makes this statement and he says, I say then... Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so in that statement, and then we're going to look at this today in in some detail as we get into the book of Romans, we see in the statement here in Galatians 5.16 that there is a a conflict, there's something about the lust of the flesh and the Spirit. Flesh and Spirit are opposed to one another. The Scripture says, Paul says in Romans, that the that they are enmity against one another. The carnal mind is enmity against the Spirit. So he says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
And then he goes on in verse 22 of Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These aren't works, they're fruit. In other words, they're not things we do, they're things that are produced through our life and they're manifest through us by the power of the Spirit. We're going to talk about a life empowered in the Spirit of God today. Against these, there are, or against such, there is no law. Verse 24, and those who are Christ, or those who have belonged to Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so, if our life is in the Spirit, then what he's saying is, let the walking out of our life, let that which is manifest through our life be consistent with the Spirit. Now go to Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 6. Now I'm going to try to accomplish a dangerous feat today. We're going to basically look at three chapters in the book of Romans. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6. Did I say Acts? I'm sorry. Uh, Romans chapter 6. So uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, and Romans chapter, Romans chapter 8. And we're going to look at it in this context. Um, we're going to look at, at the, over, the overriding theme of these three chapters. I just want to touch on three things out of each of these chapters to help us understand um, what it means to live a life empowered in the Spirit of God. So a life empowered in the Spirit is most importantly, it speaks of what we are to be more than what we are to do. I want you to catch this. I want you to understand this. A life empowered in the Spirit is most importantly the power to be, not only the power to do. We are fundamentally at our core performance-based creatures. And the reason we are that way is because we ate of the wrong tree in the beginning. And because we ate of the wrong tree in the beginning, we can see from the very beginning. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, look at the order of creation. You get to Genesis chapter 3 where where Eve and Adam partake of the fruit and they fall. And they come to possess a fallen nature. We see out of that what was the very first thing they did. They covered themselves. They did something to try to cover their sin. They worked to cover their own sin. And God wouldn't accept that. And we could go into quite a bit of detail and see all through just the book of Genesis where God would not allow man to operate out of that frame of thought. And so... We are performance-based creatures at our very core. The problem with that is there's no performance we can give to God. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves acceptable. There is no work we can do. The only work that is acceptable is the work Christ has done. Now, that doesn't mean... We don't walk in good works because we do. But where do we walk in those good works? We walk in those good works where? 
in Christ. In Christ. And they're not works that we have created for ourselves. They are works, Ephesians 2.10, that were created for us in Christ Jesus beforehand, these good works that we should walk in. And so everything points away from us, and it points to who? It points to Christ. It takes the glory from us, and it gives the glory to Him. But we participate in that glory, right? Because we are partakers in Christ. And so a life empowered in the Spirit, most importantly, is the power to be. We live out of our nature. You realize that? Or out of our identity. We live, we walk, we move, we do according to our nature. We can be imitators for a moment in time and we can fool, but we can never sustain that through the power of our flesh, through the power of our carnal nature. We can't do it. This is the gospel. The gospel is not only you can't do it, God doesn't expect you to do it. And he will let you come to this place of utter futility and hopelessness. That's where you're supposed to come to so that you look to him and trust in him to do what only he can do. And so we live out of our nature. So the question is not first what, but rather who. The life empowered in the Spirit speaks to our identity. In Christ, what does the Scripture say that we are? It says that we are children of God. We're His seed. We are His offspring. That means if we're children of God, whose nature do we become partakers of? The nature of God. This is what Peter says. Through these great and precious promises, you have become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't make us God, but that does make us, what? Partakers of his life. And this is what Jesus has imparted to us through the death, the burial, and the resurrection that we identify with by grace through faith. So a life empowered in the Spirit is a life lived in the Spirit. But before we can before we can understand or appreciate a life empowered in the Spirit, we need to understand or know what it means to be enslaved in the flesh. And this is why we're going to look at these three chapters, because these three chapters go into great detail and help us understand this very important thing, so that we don't make the mistake of thinking that a life empowered in the Spirit is just about what I do. And I spend my time going back to this tendency I have to want to work hard for God and do all of these things. So where do we see this? We see this pictured in, in the Gospels. For instance, in Matthew seven twenty two and 23, Jesus said, "...in that day many will come to me and they will say, Lord, Lord..." Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do great signs and wonders in your name? But I will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Obviously, they thought they knew Jesus, right? Lord, Lord, here we are. Look at our great works that we did for you. They're like Cain bringing their basket of fruit. Look at the basket of fruit I brought to you, God. Look how hard I worked for you. And God says, I can't respect that offering, Cain. Because it's the work of your hands, and I can't allow you to think that your own works will somehow be acceptable to me, so I have to reject your offering. God wasn't being unfair to Cain. He was being incredibly graceful 
to Cain, trying to help Cain understand, Cain, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to earn merit, earn my merit, earn my favor if I accept this offering from you. So here come those in the day, and Jesus says, they're going to come to me and say, look at the great works we did in your name, Jesus. Surely we are accepted and highly favored in your kingdom. He says, no, as a matter of fact, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, what's important for us to see, they obviously thought they knew Jesus, but the reality is it doesn't matter how much we think we know Jesus. The question is, does Jesus know us? And how does Jesus come to know us? How does God come to know us? He can only know us as we become his children. If we're not his child, he doesn't know us. We're not known by him. And how do we become his child? Well, you have to be born again. You have to trust in him by grace through faith. So this life empowered in the Spirit is not just about what we do. It's more importantly about who we are. So let's look at Romans 6. Romans 6. Romans 6 reveals our emancipation in the cross. You realize that. You are emancipated in the cross of Christ. Whether you realize it or not, you were, I was, every human being, past, present, and future, is born into slavery. They're born a slave of sin and death. And unless they are emancipated, unless they are freed from their bondage, set free from that, they remain in bondage, in slavery. They remain enslaved. So the cross, what is the cross? Now, honestly, do you realize that in the, in the ancient times when Jesus was crucified, so the scripture says this, anyone hung on a tree or anyone hung on a cross is cursed. Do you realize that the death Jesus suffered was the most cursed death he could suffer? He literally became a curse for us. And so we wear our crosses around our necks, but we don't really appreciate what that symbol means, what it really symbolizes. It is an instrument of death, a cruel death, a horrid death. But that very same instrument of death is also the instrument God used to emancipate you, to set you free. The cross is our instrument, the instrument of our death. To what? To freedom. Because unless I am crucified with him, I cannot, what? I cannot live with him. Romans 6. Let's go there. We're going to read some scripture together, okay? Hope you brought your Bible. If not, there should be one in the chair back or under the chair there for you. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not! Exclamation point. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So, do you see the expectation? If we 
were crucified with him and died with him, the expectation is that we will also what? Be raised with him and live in his life. That's good news. So the cross is the instrument, is the instrument of my death, but it is my death to freedom. It's not my death and that's the end. It's my death so that I can be buried with him so that I can be what? Raised with him. No death, no freedom. No death, no emancipation. No cross, no emancipation. No cross, we remain enslaved. So the cross is the instrument of our death to freedom. And so for if we have been united, verse 5, together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, everybody say old man, was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Your old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. Why? So that you would be set free and not enslaved any longer. Now, we don't have time to to go verse by verse and, and really pick this chapter apart, though we will one day, but just not today. Maybe we'll just take about a year and we'll just go verse by verse through the book of Romans because it would take probably a year to really study that book. But it declares something that's really important for us to grasp. And I can tell you about it, but you've got to get the revelation of it by the Spirit of God. Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And that is a powerful statement. See, the problem is, if Christian, if you are truly in Christ, you're dead, but you may not know it. You've been buried with him, Your old man has been done away with, but the question is, do you know it? Are you still living out of that old man, out of the mind of that old nature? And if you are, you need to ask yourself a question. Either, I'm not renewing my mind. Do I need to be more diligent in renewing my mind? Do I need to pray and and have God to really begin to reveal to me the need of the renewing of my mind, and then not just wait for it to fall out of heaven for you, but do you wash your mind with the, with the water of the Word? Said so Pastor Jeff, are you advocating brainwashing? I absolutely am. I advocate that you wash your brain every day with the Word of God. Because this is how your mind's going to be renewed. And you're going to stop living out of the old man that was crucified and buried with him. And you'll begin to live out of the new man that you were raised in when you experienced the new birth in Christ Jesus. You've got to get emancipated. You've been emancipated in Christ. The question is, are you walking in your freedom or are you still living in your bondage? And if you have truly been set free then walk in your freedom. Because Paul says, you are free. You are no longer a slave to sin. 
If you died, you died to sin. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed. For real, people, that's what Paul is saying. Reckon yourself to be dead, really, Indeed, for real, you are dead to sin. Reckon yourself such. But at the same time, reckon yourself alive to God. Because when we were enslaved in sin, we were dead to God. But now that we have been emancipated and set free from our sin, we are dead to sin, but we are alive to God. That's good news. So the cross is the instrument of our death to our freedom purpose of our death is to bring us into our freedom, to bring us out of death and into life. So Paul goes on, he makes some really uh, important statements there in chapter 6, but we're not going to take time to go through this whole chapter. He talks about we were slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to God. That, I don't know how your Bible inter- translates it. It may translate the word slave as servant, but it really is the word slave. It's, it's the word for the lowest form of slavery. We were in the lowest form of slavery to sin. And can a slave deliver himself? No, he can't. So God delivered us, and now we have become Slaves, that same servitude, that same bondage we were in to sin, now we are in that slavery and that bondage and that servitude to God. You might think, well, that doesn't sound good. No, that's good. That's really good. Why? Because God is good. And in taking us out of slavery to sin, He took us out of death. And in making us slaves to God, He brought us into His Life. Don't ever forget that it's his life. It's not your life. It's his life that he's brought you into. So here is this emancipation. The cross is the instrument of our death to bring us to freedom, to bring us to life. Now, remember we said this, that to understand our emancipation, we need to understand our enslavement. Now, let's go to chapter 7 of Romans. I know we skipped a lot there, but, you know, take some time this week and, and Read and meditate on Romans 6, 7, and 8. Actually, you might even start in Romans chapter 5. Those four chapters. Read and meditate in those four chapters. And you'll begin to understand what God empowered you to be when he saved you. All right, Romans chapter 7. If Romans chapter 6 reveals to us our emancipation in the cross and the instrument of our death to freedom, then Romans chapter 7 reveals to us our enslavement in the flesh and and the horror of our bondage to death. The cross was our instrument of death to freedom. Romans 7 reveals the horror of our bondage to death. So Romans chapter 7 Paul begins this chapter and he gives kind of an analogy of, of, a, of a man and a woman married. Uh, and if you've been through Not I But Christ, you'll know that's a really powerful thing. We're going to skip past that. 
Um, and we're going to go down to verse, now let's go to verse, um, let's go to verse, let's go to verse 13. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. Romans 7, 13. Has then what is good, talking about the law, become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So the commandment magnified our sinfulness. The commandment wasn't sinful. The commandment magnified our sinfulness. It revealed just how sinful we truly are. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Pay attention to the language, sold under sin. This is this is language which is revealing, it's portraying bondage. We're slaves. We're sold under sin. This is our bondage, okay? Am I the only one, or is it like super-duper hot in here? Huh? Maybe I'll just take this off. I mean, usually, no, don't turn it up for me, because usually everybody freezes in here, is what I'm told. So, we'll just do that. Okay, so he says this, sold under sin. Verse 15, for what am I doing? For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Are you catching this? If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. The law is good, and the law is revealing that my life is contrary to what is good. Okay? For I know that in me, that is in the flesh... Verse, I'm sorry, verse 17, this is important. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now listen, Paul is not passing the buck like, like Adam did. Y'all know Adam passed the buck, guys. God, it's this woman you gave me. That's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is not saying, well, God, it's not my fault, it's sin in me. He's not passing the buck. He's just telling the truth. What he's saying is, it's not my fault, God. He's saying is, I can't help myself. And that's not a defense. He's not, he's not offering a defense to God saying, God, you've got to give me a pass because I can't help myself. That's what we would do. That's what we do, right? That's our fallen nature. That's Adam going, God, it wasn't my fault. It was the woman. No. Paul is just making a plain statement here declaring his hopelessness. He is coming to a realization. Or we might say it this way. He's, he's recording the revelation he came to. And the revelation he came to is that there is something at work in me and I am hopelessly enslaved to it. It's not a defense. Why is it not a defense? Because it is who I am. This is who I am, Paul is saying. All of these years... That I was a Pharisee keeping the law, a Hebrew of Hebrews doing all this thing, blameless in terms of the righteousness of the law. These are all things Paul said in his epistles. Paul is revealing to the Romans, he's, he's, he's given a chronology here of this revelation he came to that, that even though I thought, when I, when I thought I was a Hebrew of Hebrews and I had a real good management of good and evil and I was really managing the law well and blameless in all of these things, 
Now I've come to realize, I've come to a revelation that is as good as I might be able to manage things, there is something that is in me. It's part of me. It's a law at work in me, and I am hopelessly enslaved to it. And there is nothing I can do to deliver myself from it. I thought I could for a long time, but then I met Jesus, and I saw true righteousness, and I came to a knowledge of the truth, and the knowledge of the truth is revealing to me that there is something at work in me greater than myself that is holding me captive. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, verse 19, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. When Paul was a Pharisee living under the law, his will was to do good. And he was deceived into thinking that he really was good because he could do good. Now he's saying, you know what? I'm realizing there's something at work in me far greater. I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Where is the law of sin? It's in our members. What's he talking about? He's talking about this flesh. He's talking about your body. You know, we... We teach the kids that that little song, I feel them in my hands, I feel them in my... This is what Paul is saying about sin. I feel sin in my hands, in my feet, in my fingers, in my... Sin has invaded me. It has taken me captive, and I cannot be loosed from it. He sees no hope. Look at this. Now, I I want you to look at something in verse 23. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity. We, we don't... The language Paul is using here, bringing me into captivity, it's a Greek word that, that speaks of warfare. It, it's, it's the type of warfare when, when a city is sieged and that city is overtaken by its enemies and it is totally and completely and utterly taken. I mean, it, it, it falls. Paul says, this is what sin has done. I have fought this battle. I have warred against this. But I have come to realize now that I have been taken captive by this thing, by sin. And it has utterly and completely taken me and holds me. This is the captivity. It's a very graphic picture that Paul is painting, that we don't get in our Western mind. But I'm telling you, the readers in Paul's day understood more clearly what he was talking about here. And so this sin, this law in his members has taken him captive. It has besieged him, it has warred. He's he's fought this fight, but he's lost it, and he's realized, I've totally and completely overcome. I'm taken 
by sin. The sin which is in my members. Verse 24, then he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now I read something really interesting. I, I, I love history. And you know, Paul in Acts 17, 28, Paul, when he's in, in Athens and he's on Mars Hill and he's talking to all the philosophers, Paul makes a statement. He says, as some of your philosophers, as some of your poets have written. So what, what can we infer from that? We know that Paul was a very educated man. So Paul understood the literature of his day. What's interesting about verse 24, in the, in the, if some of you, I don't know if any of you guys know about the history of Rome, uh, but Rome, there was a famous poet. Rome's most famous poet, most famous writer was a guy named Virgil. Okay, and Virgil wrote a, he wrote this epic work called the, the Aeneid. And it was kind of like Homer's Iliad. You guys ever seen that movie? What's that movie? Um, Release the Kraken. What was that movie? Clash of the Time. Who saw that? It was pretty good. Well, that comes from Greek mythology. That's all, you know, kind of like Homer in the Iliad, all these stories. Well, that was from Greece. Well, in Rome, Virgil was this poet. And Virgil wrote, basically, he picked up where Homer left off, and he, he had this Greek or this Trojan hero who supposedly made his way to Italy and was the ancestors of the people who founded Rome. And so Virgil wrote this. Well, what's interesting, in one of Virgil's writings, he writes about this king called Mezentius. And Mezentius was a king known for his cruelty. And one of the things that Mezentius would do is Mezentius would take those whom he captured. So, listen, there was no Geneva Convention back then, okay? Guantanamo Bay would be like a five-star resort compared to what the guys who were taken in warfare back in that time, it was merciless. And for, for people of that day to call Mezentius merciless and cruel, he had to be pretty merciless and cruel. And one of the things that Mezentius would do, what he was known for, is he would take those that he had taken captive, and he would chain them to a dead body. And he would leave them chained to that dead body until that death, imputrid, you get the picture, just invaded that living person and it just killed them. And Virgil writes in his writings, that, that this was known in the day. This was like the cruelest thing. You'd rather be roasted, toasted, anything, but you didn't want Mezentius to get you, and you didn't want to be chained to this dead body because it was the most horrid of deaths that you could experience. This is what Paul is declaring. Paul to these Romans, O wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul just gets through painting this graphic picture to these Roman believers who understand, who is reading between the lines and they're catching what Paul is saying. And Paul is saying, I am like one that has been taken captive. I am powerless and I have now been 
linked to, chained to, this body of death, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, the answer in Mezentius' day was, no one's going to deliver you from this body of death because you were put there to die. Paul says, who will deliver me? He paints this picture, I am one taken captive, one utterly totally and completely defeated by sin. And sin has found its way in me, and it is my death. Who can deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Is there anything good in the flesh, church? What's the Bible say? There's not anything good in the flesh. Paul says, your soul, my soul, is is trapped inside this body of death. And if I don't get free from it, it will bring me to the same state that it is. Who can deliver us? I thank God for Jesus Christ. So, to understand what Paul was saying about our life in the flesh and what the sinful flesh brings to us and does to us, he paints this picture and he cries out, who will deliver me? And he says, I thank God for Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. So the cross is the instrument of our death to freedom. Our emancipation is in the cross. We only understand that fully when we understand what we are enslaved to. The horror of our bondage to death that comes from being enslaved in the flesh. Who will deliver us from this body of death? I thank God for Jesus Christ. Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I was chained to this body of death, condemned by this cruel master called sin, but now I have been set free. There is therefore now no condemnation. Where? In Christ. To those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What did Paul say back up in 723? But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. He is bound to this. Who's going to set him free? I thank God for Jesus Christ. For I was bound by the law of sin and death. But now I have, verse 2, been set free, been made free by the law... By the law of the spirit of the life, of life in Christ. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. This is what Paul did. He fought, he fought, he fought in his flesh to overcome sinfulness. He fought, he warred in his flesh to try to overcome unrighteousness. And he finally came to a place where he says, I have been taken captive. 
My walls have fallen. My city has been besieged. The enemy has come in and I realize I am totally and completely held captive. I am a condemned man. I have been chained to a body of death left for surely to die. Who will deliver me? Christ will deliver you. And in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no death in Christ. There is life, for he is our life. And what the law was weak in that it could not repel sin's assault, God did. Look at this. For the law, what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Where is it fulfilled? In us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. We live according to our nature. And if the flesh is the nature that we possess, the old man... Adam, whatever you want to call it, if that's your nature, that's what you're going to live. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, but it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This was what Paul came to, his realization. He's in the flesh. There's nothing he can do, not only to please God, but to push back the sin that assails him, that holds him captive. But you, look at verse 9, here's a wonderful promise, church. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Are you in the flesh? Or are you in the Spirit? That's a question that you need to ask yourself. Because those in the flesh cannot please God, but those who are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, you're not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if the Spirit of God dwells in you, are you in the flesh or are you in the Spirit? You're in the Spirit. Who says? Who says? The Bible says. I don't say. The Bible says. The question is, do you know that you're in the Spirit? Are you still living out of the mind of the flesh? See, Paul thought he was in the Spirit, but lived out of the mind of the flesh, keeping doing the works of righteousness, and he came to a place in his life when he said, hey, my city is overthrown. I realize that now. I am a man condemned to death. I've been chained to a body of death and I can't deliver myself. Who can deliver me? Well, Jesus Christ can deliver me. Because what the law was weak and unable to do through the flesh, God did by sending His Son in the form of sinful flesh that He might do what? Condemn sin in the flesh. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Verse 1 Verse 9, and you are not in the flesh if you are in Christ. Or, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, 
The body is dead because of sin. We learned in chapter 6, does sin have power over a dead man? No. Those who have died have been freed from sin. If you've been crucified with Christ, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And look at verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with us, with our spirit, that we are children of God. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. You realize you have a spirit, right? The spirit of a man. You have a spirit. And when you're born again, your spirit, the spirit of your man, is conformed perfectly to the spirit of God. As a matter of fact, they're married. They become one. Two no longer, now they are one. Your mind, your soul has to be renewed to that truth. Your flesh, you can't dress it up, you can't pretty it up, you can't do anything with it except kill it. Your flesh needs to be crucified. Because once it's dead and put away, then you're free from that. say, but Pastor Jeff, how can I be free when I'm still walking around in it? Ah, here is the dilemma, right? See, if you're not careful, your mind is going to think you're still held captive by it because you're still walking around in it. But what does the Scripture teach us? Let me remind you, this is why it's important to read your Bible. Knowing this, Romans 6.6, remember, through the cross is our emancipation. Knowing this, that our old man was, past tense, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. I don't care that you're still walking around in it. Was it crucified with him in it? If it was, then you are no longer in the flesh. The Bible says you are in the spirit because you are in Christ and you possess the spirit of God. So now walk and live according to your nature, which is Christ, which is his righteousness. Because when you were born again, what did you become? You were a child of Adam. You're born again. Now you are a child of God. Does God know you as his child? You better believe he does. God has no illegitimate children. God has no children that he does not know. He knows every one of his children. And when you become a child of God, God knows you. Don't worry about whether you know God. Listen, he knows you. And if he knows you, you will come to know him. And you won't be deceived into thinking because you've done all these cool things in his name that You obviously get a pass into heaven because of all your good works. No, listen, if he knows you, you will know him in spirit and in truth, in reality, according to what this scripture declares. You will. God will not allow you to not know him if you're his child. So, you don't have to live life fearful well, am I going to stand before God one day and are my works going to be good enough? Well, listen, if you're dependent on your works, they're not going to be good enough. I'll just tell you that right now. Quit wondering that and trust in his work and believe that you're his child because he knows you. And your spirit bears witness with his spirit that you are a child of God.
So we're empowered in the Spirit. It's the power of our freedom to life. So now in the Spirit, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Who are not in the flesh any longer, but in the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit lives in us. We're empowered in the Spirit. In Christ, there's no, we're no longer in the flesh, but we're in the Spirit. In Christ, the Spirit bears witness that we are, what? Children of God. Romans 8, 16. If you're not in Christ, where are you? You're still in the flesh. And you're still under the power of sin and death. If you're trusting in your goodness and your works and what you can do to try to get something from God, stop it. That's not gospel. See, we all need to come to the place Paul came to. I want you to really, this week, I want you to read these three chapters. I want you to really consider Romans chapter uh, 7, verses 23 and 24. I want you to consider the place Paul came to where he saw himself for who he truly was, totally and completely depraved, utterly defeated by sin, and hopeless to gain any advantage over it. To the point that he was like one of those captives of Mazentius in Virgil's epic story that was chained to this dead body and left there to rot along with it with no hope of deliverance. But we do have hope. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can deliver us. He doesn't give us a key to the lock on the chain and say, now here's a key, now you do the rest. No. He utterly totally, completely delivers us out of that and translates us into his life. Free from that condemnation and free from that death. This is what it means to live a life empowered in the Spirit of God. See, if you don't understand that's who you are, you're going to mistakenly become one of those people that come to Jesus in Matthew 7 and you're going to think that what you were able to do gained you an advantage, gave you some merit, some favor with God. And you're going to come to God presenting all that you did for Him. And He's going to say, depart from me, I don't know you. But when we understand who we are in Christ, what we have been set free from, what Paul did, what the writers of Scripture did, what the, what the Scripture declares that we are to do as we now go out in His power, we are not doing that to, to merit or to gain anything. Yesterday, I, as I was ringing the bell, I, I, I saw this lady dressed really nice. It's, it's like sprinkling rain. Dressed really nice out in the middle of the parking lot. And she just caught my attention because she's like walking just like parallel with the front of Walmart. And it just looked kind of strange. I'm like, I thought, oh, she's looking for her car, you know. She walks all the way down, and then she goes in the other entrance. I don't think anything about it. About three minutes later, she comes out, the entrance I'm at, and, I'm like, and then she walks out, and I say, Merry Christmas. You know, I'm real cheerful. Merry Christmas, how you doing? She didn't look at me. She didn't crack a smile. She walked right by me, walked back out to the middle of the parking lot, I'm like, what is she? She's looking around. I'm like, 
she got my attention. I'm like, what is she doing? I'm watching her. I'm ringing the bell. I'm just like, what is that lady doing? She goes to this little silver car. Then I see this other girl get out. She's dressed real nice, too, and she's walking. I'm like, what in the heck are these people doing? Then I realized they were, it was a car full of Jehovah's Witness ladies. And they're sitting out there, dun-dun, dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun, stalking people in the parking lot. And they're, they're, I'm just watching them. They're just out there. And so someone would come out with their stuff, and boy, they'd car door would open, they'd bolt over there, and they'd witness to them. You know, they did this for like two hours. And I thought, that is so sad. But I don't see any Christians out here sharing the gospel. Not that we have to be in the parking lot of Walmart. But you understand what they're motivated? They're motivated out of fear. I mean, when I smiled at her and said, Merry Christmas, how are you doing? She didn't look at me. She didn't say, go to you-know-where. She did nothing. Of course, then I realized when I said Merry Christmas to her, that's like, you know, get away from me. We don't celebrate Christmas. But they're out there doing that for a lie, motivated out of fear. See, if we're not careful, we can't get the attitude and say, well, I'm saved by grace, I don't have to do anything. No, if we're saved by grace and and God has given us his life, the life of his son, if that's who my nature, if that's who my identity is, if I understand what I've been delivered from, what I was enslaved to and what God has now delivered me from, man, why would I not want to go shout it from the rooftops? Or at least... Let it manifest through my life as I live every day. Are we perfect? No, we're not perfect. I like what Terry said the Bible say this morning. You know, sometimes our imperfections can even help in our witness. Our neighbors don't need to think that we're perfect. They just need to know that we're human. They don't need to think that we're saved because we're so good. They just need to understand that we're trusting in one that was so much gooder than I was. (laughs) Gooder is not a word. Don't use that, okay? That's bad English. I knew it. I know it. We're trusting in one greater, more righteous than us. But that reality of who we are, to live a life empowered in the Spirit, that life should come out, should be seen, should be heard, should be known. It should be our joy to go and make disciples, to teach preach, to baptize, not behind a pulpit, but wherever you go. Church, you understand, this is our purpose. This is why we come here. This is why we gather. This is not just to come get Holy Ghost goosebumps or have a nice time and visit and drink coffee and eat donuts. All that's good. But do you understand that God saved you for a purpose greater than two hours on Sunday morning? He saved you for a purpose greater than how big your bank account's going to be or what kind of house you're going to live in. He saved you for a purpose greater than even getting to go to heaven one day. He put you on this earth for such a time as this. This is your time. This is our time of visitation on planet earth. This is our time of visitation in the city of Taylor, in East Williamson County. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do? Are we going to just keep living our life and... I'm churchy two hours on Sunday. I'm a Christian two hours on Sunday, but the rest of the week I don't think about God. I don't think about my faith. No, don't live like that. As much as sin had captivated Paul and infiltrated his very being, let God and let his spirit captivate you. 
Let his spirit infiltrate your very being and let his spirit in his life and his love be the expression that comes out of your life. Not just because it's Christmas, but because of who you are as a Christian, because of who you are in Christ. He has given you his spirit and you can live life empowered in that spirit to manifest who he is. Amen. Let's all stand. Paul goes on in that, into that chapter, Romans 8, and he says, what can separate us from the love of God? And the answer, the short answer is, there is not anything in heaven, on earth, created, material, spiritual, there's nothing that can separate you from his love. Because he has given you his spirit and you are his child. Has that happened to you today? I ask you that question. Have you received his spirit? Are you his child? It's a question that you need to ask yourself. And if you ask honestly and you listen with an honest, open heart and mind, God will give you the honest answer. Father, I pray today that as we go from this place, Lord, that we would go. Lord, challenged to understand what we have been delivered from. Lord, what we were enslaved to. The wretchedness of our condition. And that you, Lord Jesus, have delivered us. Taken us from being slaves to sin and death. Dead to God. To be slaves to righteousness. Alive unto God. Lord, help us in your grace to present our members as slaves of righteousness, as instruments of righteousness. Help us to understand, God, that we don't do that in our own power, out of the will of our flesh. We do that in your power, by the will of your Spirit. And as we live surrendered to that will and to your Spirit, Lord, our lives will not be able to do anything but to reflect the life, the love, and the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, be a witness to Christ in this world. For your glory, God. And thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be benefactors. That, Lord, it is for your glory, but we are partakers of the, of the joy, of the peace, of, of all the good things. In your presence is fullness of joy. We thank you for the joy that you've given us in Christ. And it's a joy... That is to remain and is to be full. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Listen, if you want prayer, please come and let's pray for healing, for anything that's going on. If you want to talk, you have questions about your faith in Christ, let's talk about it. Next weekend is the trip to Bethlehem. So if you haven't signed up, I think there's a sign up back there. And uh, you can get all the details. It's in the bulletin, I'm sure. God bless your day.